Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I'm going to read the Word of God to you this morning from Genesis 2, and we're going to read 21 to 25. So the Lord God called, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Then he said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. We're in a series called Being Human. If you're new here or, uh, it, uh, or not, uh, clearly you should know by the title it applies to you, uh, to all of us. We're trying to figure out if God is the one who has made us, uh, what does it mean to actually be us? And we said these aren't just conversations for, um, you know, those people who are in school forever in the philosophy department, drinking coffee, sitting around saying, what are, what are we here for? We're all asking that question. The songwriters are asking it. The movies are, are um, writing stories to try to answer it. And so we should be in the conversation. What does it mean to be me? Now, um, today we're actually talking about, as Kurt said, we're talking about what does it mean to be sexual beings? That as human beings, we are made as sexual beings. What does that, what does that mean? And so um, we are in a, we was going to be an eight-week series, and the last week was going to be a hot seat Sunday, where we were just going to do 40 minutes of Q&A, um, just to kind of deal with probably the questions that have been accumulating. But because of the ice storm, we had to cut a week, so we've cut that week. But we're going to add some time for Q&R, which is just response, because that means I can just say I don't know. Um, we're going to have some Q&R after today's message, after next week's message. So today we're talking about sex and sexuality. Dave uh, is speaking at our congregation in Bolton on uh, gender and gender identity, and so next week we're flipping, so he'll be uh, speaking on that topic here. So we're going to have some Q&R after that one, and probably one or two later on in the rest of the series. So Tony's number is up there on the screen for you. Please use it responsibly. If you have questions as they're coming up, we're going to have some time at the end. The number will be back on the screen, but if you're thinking about stuff and you're like, wait, you, hopefully what I'm going to do is raise more questions as opposed to give answers, and so we'll have some time to get into that. <clears throat> Now, as we talk about um, sexuality, maybe this is a gross oversimplification, but it seems that we come to this topic as people in the room from two maybe very different extremes. For some, um, if you were like most in my generation or whatever, uh, certainly if you were from a non-Caucasian family, although the people I've talked to just seems to be this is normal, um, the idea of sex in your home growing up was never talked about. If it was, it was once, and you've been trying to forget it ever since, right? If you were a boy, you got tossed a book, maybe. You checked if there were pictures. If there weren't, it was out. You know, uh, I remember one girl saying to me, I think I've told you this before, she said uh, that the night before her wedding, her mom called her to give her the sex talk on the phone. She's like, seriously? Uh, no, I just think you need to know this. It's like, okay, got it, right? Um, there's this, that maybe either explicitly or implicitly because of that, sex in our home was just a no-fly zone. We didn't talk about it. <clears throat> I mean, as you got older and do the math, you looked at your siblings and go, oh, okay, that happened at least only three times, right? Like, you were, it was this thing that was, like, associated with shame or hiddenness. Maybe even people said, oh, that's dirty. Don't talk about that. Sometimes even the body parts that you have, your, our parents made up names for them because we just wouldn't use the normal names, right? And it wasn't just about modesty. There was something that maybe somehow you just connected 
sort of shame and hiddenness with sexuality. Um, and, and perhaps if you grew up in any kind of religious tradition, maybe if you heard any messages or the church or the religious institution that you were part of talking about sex, it was probably in a negative light. Um, and, and this idea of like judgment or shame, and maybe you came out of that feeling actually ashamed. Or maybe just confused about, you know, how do I understand this part of myself? Or maybe that's just something I, I'm not supposed to talk about ever, and then when I get married, it's supposed to be this most amazing thing, but none of us have ever talked about it, and we actually don't even talk about it in marriage either. So that's, uh, that's one perspective, that sex is, is sort of dirty or shameful. And, um, and if you grew up with that, like I said, maybe you came up with a feeling of shame, or even as you got into your adult life, or you had to learn about it from your friend Bobby in grade four, or whatever, who seemed to know all kinds of stuff about it. But there's just this association with it that there's a, there's a hiddenness about it. You can't talk, you can't speak, you can't, even the fact that we're talking about it in church, you're like, whoa, what, like what's going to happen? Uh, and then maybe the other extreme, which is our culture's general perspective, which maybe is in reaction to that, which is, hey, sex is good. Like, let's talk about it. Let's sing about it. Let's talk about it all the time. Let's sing about it all the time. Like, this is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, this is just an appetite. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you're feeling hot, you have sex. Just make sure you do it safely. Just make sure the person you're doing with consents to have it, right? Like, that, that's why consent is such a big deal, as it should be. But it's like, hey, that's actually the only requirement now we have for sex. As long as two people agree. It's the only bar we've set. Because we said, hey, like... It's an appetite. We're human beings. We're sexual beings. So if you feel like it, do it. Just do it responsibly and don't hurt anyone along the way. Um, we even have like places in the country or continent dedicated to going and doing whatever you want, whether that's Las Vegas or whatever. Uh, I graduated from, uh, in my alma mater, they had this dinner that was, would happen the year after you graduated, and it was called the John Orr Dinner. Now, John Orr was some great, like, grad of 90 or 29 who was a doctor and all this stuff, but the dinner had become to name the John Score Dinner, because that was the night you could hook up with anybody you didn't get a chance to in your four years of university. Literally, that, that's what it was famous for. So, like, we live in a culture now, like, that's just part of what we do. Like, it's a free world, and it's an appetite, and so just enjoy yourself. And yet I think if, if those are either of our two perspectives, and maybe some of us in the room actually kind of feel torn between those two things, like, oh, it's, you know, I was told kind of it's dirty, it's shameful, and no one said that, but that's kind of how I feel. And, like, really, it's actually not, and what's the big deal? And it seems to be normal and just do it responsibly and don't hurt anybody. That if that's either of our two perspectives or our only two perspectives, it is simply not enough to be able to understand ourselves as human beings. To know what does it mean that this is a core part of who I am. I've been made a sexual being. If that's all I have, it's dirty or shameful or it's just an appetite. It is simply not enough. And maybe it's an explanation for why in many ways, even though we live in the, in the, in the, you know, the free sexual revolution, it's still creating so much chaos in our world. And many of us would sit in here and say, yeah, I'm not really sure how to think of it for myself. If you have kids, I'm not really sure how to think about talking to my kids about it. If you're married, he's like, I'm not even sure how we have good conversation or good sex even within our marriage. If you're not married, just think, I don't know if I'm going to be one day or how do I deal with just my understanding of myself? We need more than what our world or our culture or our family upbringing has given us. Fortunately for us, the scriptures have a very different perspective on it. And it's not, it's dirty, and it's not, it's just an appetite. The scriptures actually say two things for us. The first one is this, that sex is beautiful. Here's what we find here, and I get, get this, okay? This is the second chapter of the entire book. 
of the Bible, or the library that is the Bible. Second chapter. Now, in ancient literature, ancient literature is different than modern literature. Modern literature, um, every chapter that's in it is kind of of equal weight of the whole book. But in ancient literature, the first few chapters were like the opening scenes of a play that you have to get. And if you understand it, the whole rest of the story makes sense. And if you miss it, you don't get the rest of the story. And so what Actually, we found, Dave and I, to my surprise, as we've been team teaching the series, in this series about being human, we have come back to the first three chapters of the Bible over and over. Uh, surprisingly, we hadn't planned on it. We just keep coming back to it. And here we find, in the second chapter of the book, a naked man and a naked woman standing outside in a garden in broad daylight, staring at each other, going, this is good. Which, you know, it's like, these aren't like, this isn't two people fumbling around with belt buckles in the dark, hoping nobody catches them. Right? It's just right away. We go, wait, opening pages of scripture, they're talking about sex? Okay, this is a relatable book. We see this. God actually made everything, right? So Genesis 1 is this kind of macro perspective, right? It's not a chronology necessarily, the first few chapters of Genesis. Oftentimes we're looking for it, the science, and it's not exactly what it's trying to do. So it gives us this big picture in Genesis 1, and Genesis 2, it dives down deep into the creation of humanity, which says to us this. However human beings came to be on the earth, they were created by God, and however human beings came to be on the earth, they are different categorically than anything else in creation. He's this deep dive into humanity here. And here's what we read. God had made Adam, and Adam was, in a sense, by himself. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This picture of humanity is stunning, not only because, you know, after God created everything, God said, it is good, it is good, it is good. When God created Eve, Adam's like, that's good. In fact, he burst into poetry. He's the original Renaissance man, right? Like, he starts singing. That's what it is. This is now bone in my phone. It's like, you are like me. There's something about you. There was an attraction. There was like a two naked people standing in a garden. Come on, everyone's had that fantasy. Like, this is what it is. It's out in the, out in the open, and God is there, which people are like, whoa, wait, what? Yeah. God created it. It's beautiful. Right in the middle of the beginning of his creation. But there's two lines that the writer of Genesis uses to describe sex, which helps us take it from like, oh yeah, no, that's cool, to like, whoa, this is beautiful, this is incredible. It says, they were together, the husband and wife were naked, and they felt no shame. So right away we see this picture of sexuality that is not with hiddenness, not with shame, not with darkness, not with trying to get something done you're not supposed to do, but just two people looking at each other, completely accepting each other, and the nakedness is not representative of simply physical nakedness, but in every way, one accepting the other. This is an astronomically higher picture than consent. That's what we see. Nakedness without any shame. It's beautiful. But then it says this. For this reason, this is sort of the writer of Genesis commenting on this. A, husband, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. This, this phrase, one flesh, is not simply describing the physical act of sex. It's actually saying the physical act of sex is describing something else. The physical act of sex is itself a picture, a description 
of two people coming together as one, being united in body, mind, and soul. The Bible was way ahead of its time. It's not science, but actually it explains a lot of science because physiologists and sex therapists and health professionals will tell you now that actually in the act of sex, the two people are becoming bonded together psychologically. They say that's why if like a couple's dating and they're having sex, it's much harder to break up than if they weren't because their, their bodies are actually being bonded together. Their souls are actually being knit together. This is actually a picture of the mingling of souls. That's how beautiful this picture is. It's not, a, it's not simply an appetite where things are being exchanged or somehow the impulse to procreate just it works so that the human race keeps going. The Bible says, no, it's much higher than that. There's this union of soul, mind, and body, which is why it's so powerful. It's much more than an appetite. How incredible is that, right? This beautiful picture and that God's saying, hey, in marriage, because this pa- passage is describing marriage and describing sex, is saying sex actually, when it works, it bonds two people together so that they're, they're, they're harder to divide. Isn't that amazing? It's this beautiful picture of what sex is meant to be. Sex is beautiful. But here's the other thing, and if you don't know this thing and you only know the one thing, and if you forget one or forget the other, you can't get a full picture of sex. Sex is not only beautiful, but it's broken. Because look at the very next chapter. When Adam and Eve actually gave God the stiff arm, right, our first parents, and we all judge them and say, how could they do that? But we all have that inclination because you know what the heart of sin is? I don't trust you. I trust me. I don't want to do life your way. I want to do life my way. I don't like your ideas for my life. I prefer my ideas for my life. I don't really trust you. I trust me. And when they did that, sin came into the world. Now look at what happens, the first sort of visual picture of what happens when intimacy is broken. Look at this. They, they ate this fruit. They, think they did this thing that God told them not to do. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? Rhetorical question. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Look what God says, you sinner. Now look what he says. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The very first thing that comes in and fractures the intimacy between human beings has to do with their sexuality and their humanity in one sense. Suddenly... They realized they were naked. Well, they had always been naked. What's like Yogi Bear figuring out he doesn't have pants? Like, wait a second. Like, what happened? All of a sudden, shame comes into the picture, and they feel the need to hide themselves from each other. That's what it first says. They covered up. Shame, um, like, wormed its way into the picture of intimacy in marriage. And suddenly, nakedness before the other person wasn't good anymore. Now there was fear. Now there was a need to hide. Psychologically, something had affected the union of souls. And they cover up. But then look what ha- happens. Who else do they cover up from? They hide from God. To God is actually coming out to meet them, looking for them. And they are not only ashamed and afraid and they hide from each other, but they're also now afraid of God. It's a picture of intimacy breaking in all ways. That if sexuality and nakedness is this sort of sum total picture of intimacy between human beings and with God, it is broken forever. And if you read the rest of the story of what we call the Old Testament, if you're wondering what the Old Testament is about and what it's one word, it's just like human beings 
through like no effort of education and morality and political systems or anything can actually find their way to God. And what you see is sexual brokenness all the way through the rest of the story. There's prostitution, there's rape, there's men using sex um, to get dominion over women, there's women using sex to manipulate men, there's just this back and forth dysfunction that starts to happen through every relationship and sex is a huge part of the dysfunction. You actually find sexuality and spirituality so tied together in this broken way. This is the picture of what it means to be human as sexual beings. We are sexually beautiful and we are sexually broken. That's the story. It's true. If you forget one, you don't have the picture of the way the world is actually meant to be. We say, well, you know, that's that, is that what scripture says? Is that true? Are we really actually sexually broken? Let me just throw out two things for you to consider. There was a, a media smart study done. It was like, like an independent survey organization. They did it in Ontario schools. And I think this was, two, I want to say 2011 or 12. You can look it up. It's called Media Smarts. That two-thirds of grade 11 boys in Ontario are addicted to pornography. Two-thirds of grade 11 boys. And this was a, a study of like 5,500 students in Ontario. They say the pornography addiction is not like alcohol, where you shouldn't have it when you're young and it's okay in moderation when you're older. Chemically, it functions like cocaine in the brain, like actually hard drugs, which is why the addiction is so strong. That once the synaptic connections, the pleasure pathways have been formed, the, 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 it's like a heroin addiction. You think you look at someone whose body's wasting away, whose family, they're losing their family. Who's, like, why would they do that? Because they cannot, it's so addictive. And they said, this is actually what pornography is doing. Think about this. If the newspapers tomorrow said, two-thirds of grade 11 boys are addicted to cocaine, the world would blow up. There would be task forces running into schools saying whatever. And you know what? Actually, addiction to pornography is worse than addiction to heroin or cocaine because you don't have to use or abuse someone to get heroin or cocaine. But you have to objectify another person to be addicted to pornography. And they say actually heavy users of pornography has lef has le have less empathy for rape victims. They're more likely to, uh, for men, they're more likely to coerce their girlfriends or wives into unwanted acts. So this is a devastating thing. I is are we not sexually broken people? We are. And then the tragedy that happened in our city a couple of weeks ago, some of you read the story. It was so disheartening to read the motivations and why this individual felt that he needed to, to carry out an attack on women. He had labeled himself as, as, as this movement called incel and apparently Reddit shut down this page that had 40,000 members who all identified themselves as incels, which is involuntary celibates. And uh, something on his page said, oh, I'm a 22-year-old virgin. So this idea that someone in themselves saying, if I can't have sex, I'm not a person. I have labeled myself as someone who's not sexually beautiful. Right? When you live in a culture that says, it's just an appetite, but you're not doing it, everybody should be able to have it. It's just like food. It's just like drink. You should be able to have it. And, all the, and we've actually made movies, right? 40-year-old virgin to poke fun at, hey, people who don't, and now a 22-year-old one is saying, I don't even know who I am if I can't have sex. It is literally destroying our world. There's brokenness in it. Now, maybe it's easy, right, to judge people like that and judge people who have an addiction or judge people who would take matters like that into their own hands, and that's how they would act out. We say, well, that's, that's so broken. But we are broken, too. We are all sexually broken people. If we don't understand that, we don't understand ourselves. One of the things that the church has been accused of, sort of rightly, in a sense, over many years is that, oh, like, uh, Christians hate gay people. 
And there's been ongoing conversation in the church is saying, oh, there's no way somebody could be born with an attraction to the same sex. And, and that, that can be, and these are people who are choosing, they're willfully disobeying God. And then those who are same-sex attractors saying, no, like and many people I know, people whose books I've read saying, I can't tell you, just for long as I've been alive, this is what I felt. It's not something within me. And both sides, in a sense, are missing the fact that, yes, all of us are sexually broken people. Like to think, oh, God would never allow us to be born in the world with broken sexuality. Yes, that's what's happened to all of us. We're all sexually broken people. And for someone to say, hey, just because I desire something doesn't actually mean it was the way I was meant to be. It's a missing part of the conversation actually for all of us that our sexual desires, what we want to be or who we are, doesn't mean that's what we're actually supposed to live out. And it isn't about trying to say to someone, oh, no, you, you could never actually desire that. It's saying, no, some of what we desire is good, it's beautiful. Some of what we desire, it's broken. And we're all in the same boat. Jesus, when he was talking about this to um, his disciples and a group of religious leaders, he, t he said something to them that actually made them realize, hey, you judge certain people who you think are sexually broken, but actually we're all in the same boat. Look what he says as he's talking to them um, about this. And this is really the, the picture as Jesus begins to tell us what we need to find our way through, find our way forward as sexually beautiful and sexually broken beings. He's talking about the law, the one of the Ten Commandments of not to commit adultery. He says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her, his heart. Now he's talking to men, so he's using women as an example, but he's, he's talking about all of us. And what was he saying? Oh, you're all in the same boat. Because the implication was, well, who listening to me has never lusted after a woman? They're all like, you don't have to put up your hand, right? You're all in the same boat. You think, oh, sexual brokenness looks like this. Have you ever lusted after a woman? Rhetorical question. Yeah, there was that one guy who put his hand up and it's like, oh, no, it was a rhetorical question. You're all in that boat. You have all done this, he says, in your heart. And he introduces this concept, which actually is a way forward for us as we try to figure out what does it mean to be sexual human beings, the idea of lust. Now, we use the word, we throw the word around lust as sort of meaning like, you know, strong desire. But, but the biblical understanding of lust, and as Jesus was talking to them about it, I is this. Using someone for our own pleasure. That's what lust is where we use someone else for our own pleasure. And here's the problem with the bar of consent that we have set in this culture. It basically says lust is fine, right? Because you have what I need and I have what you need. So as long as we agree to exchange it, we can do it. You have what I need, I have what you need. For both, it may be sexual satisfaction. For one, it may be acceptance. For another, it may be a notch in the belt. Whatever it is, as long as I can get you to agree then I can take from you what I need, and I'll give you what you want in return. This idea actually fuels the entire sex industry, right? I'll pay for it. If you're willing to take payment for it, you'll give me what I want, and you get money in return. But it's not just the sex industry. It is our view of sexuality is saying, if this is just an appetite, if you have what I need, and I'm attracted to it, and I need it, because lust is fundamentally thinking about myself first. So you have what I need, so I want to take it. It's what fuels pornography, right? I'm going to look at something or someone for my own enjoyment. It's what fuels a glance when you walk down the street. It's, it's what fuels the idea of how we might think about another person being in our life or fantasize about somebody else. Imagine if we were married to that person and not this person. It's this is what I need. This is what I want. And if I can get them to give it to me, then we have an exchange. But the whole system is built on lust. And Jesus says that's a problem because it's all about 
that exchange. Using someone else for your own enjoyment. And consent is important, but if it's the only bar, we are just feeding into that lie of saying, this is what it is. I need it, you need it, let's get it done. Jesus says, hey, there's something wrong in your heart if you see other people that way. And actually, in many ways, it feels like when, if that's the only bar we have, then everybody becomes a potential sexual partner in our eyes, right? Everybody becomes, we stop seeing people as humans and we start seeing them as sexual objects for our own satisfaction. Because that's what happens. And Jesus says, that's what lust is and it gets into your heart. Yeah, you maybe not sleep with someone else's spouse, but if you actually even look at someone as if they belong to you, as if their body is your right, as if who they are is your right to talk about or think about, that's lust. He said, it's the same thing. He said, it's a wormed our way, wormed its way into all of our hearts. We're all in the same boat. It's what sexual brokenness looks like in our lives. That's why he gives us another command later on. Instead, John 15, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? He goes on. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now this verse isn't, Jesus wasn't talking about sex in this verse, but this is absolutely about sex. Because what does he say? Instead of seeing other people and this is possible even if you're married. It's possible to see your marriage partner out of lust. You're just saying, well, this is something I need, and this is, isn't this something we agreed to do, and so we exchange it, whatever that may be. He says, no, that's not a sufficient way to look at people and said, love each other as I have loved you. How did I love you? I laid down my life for you. I didn't try to take from you what I needed. I gave of myself for you in friendship. Friends, if we begin to understand this, every bit of our understanding of sexuality changes. Because here's what Jesus was saying, that intimacy is not about sex, but about self-sacrifice. Intimacy is not about sex, but about self-sacrifice for the sake of friendship. That fundamentally Jesus was changing our sexual orientation. It's not about you and what you need and your appetites and your desires or your rights or your wiring. It is about those around you who you are meant to serve and to love in friendship. And this is amazing, right? Because Jesus comes into this world even though at the beginning of this story of scripture, it says it's not good for a man to be alone. There's husband and wife and they're naked and all that good stuff. And Jesus comes into the world alone. A sexual being, not sexually active, not actually even seeming interested in being married, which was culturally mind-blowing. A man who wasn't pursuing to be married was not considered a legitimate human being. And in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about, okay, what does it mean to be single people in the world? Whether we're single or single again, or maybe we're not going to be someday, or we've decided we will be. What does that actually mean? Jesus tells us about sex as a sexual being, not sexually active, saying, listen, it's not actually, you know, because the culture kind of talks out of two sides of his mouth. It says, it's no big deal, it's just an appetite, but you're not doing it? 
Jesus actually comes and says, no, it's a huge deal. It's amazing. But you know what? You can live without it. You can have a perfectly fulfilled life without it. And I want you to stop seeing everybody around you as sexual beings instead as people who are friends. What does this mean for you as you're a single person? Say maybe you're dating somebody you're hoping to be dating. What this means is that you would never take something from them for your own gratification, even if they're offering it to you. Because you care about them truly, you love them as a friend. And so if you're dating, don't try to take what you can get from the other person sexually. See how you can actually live as friends. How do you actually pursue friendship? How do I think about you first? And even if we say, oh, we're in love, or if you love me, you do this, you say, no, no, like, actually, I'm s- I'm s- I care so much about you that I would never give that to you before we're married, and I would never ask that from you because I actually love you. It isn't about being a prude. It's about saying, no, friendship, sacrificial friendship is way more important than us expressing our sexuality. It's about trusting God and saying, I wouldn't take that from you because we're not married. Now, what if you're single and you're thinking, well, I, I, I might be single for the foreseeable future. Well, Jesus actually releases us and says, hey, listen, life actually isn't about the sum total of your sexual relationships. It isn't just like hunger and thirst. You can actually live without it. So what does it look like to pursue intimacy in friendship? If you're a same-sex attracted person and you're thinking, okay, what does this mean for me? If, if, if sexuality is tied up in marriage between a man and a woman, well, what does it mean? Am I supposed to just deny or repress my sexual desires? No, but you're actually meant to just pursue sacrificial friendship like everyone else. You know, we've done this thing where we've held up sort of heterosexual marriage as ultimate reality, and anyone else who can't get there, well, this you're a second-class citizen. For some who say, no, like, I have sexual desires, maybe for the same sex, maybe for the opposite sex. What is God calling me? He's calling you to pursue s- sacrificial friendship. I was listening to a podcast by a guy named Dr. Nate Collins, and he would identify as gay. He says, I'm a same-sex attracted person, but I understand that according to the scriptures and what Jesus, the life Jesus offers, that I'm not meant to actually be in a gay relationship, that I'm not actually meant to pursue marriage as a gay person. So he said, you know, for me, I've kind of explored a couple of different things. One is, can I live with a couple other guys who are also gay, who are also saying, no, I want to I pursue being single as a gay person. How do we pursue Christ's image for ourselves together to be in friendship, to be in community? But he actually said he, he is in, in a mixed orientation marriage, which he called it. You can listen to his podcast. It's on Preston Sprinkle's podcast called Theology in the Raw. He said, for me, he said, I, I am attracted to the same sex, but he said, I knew I wanted to be married, and I knew God's plan for me if I was going to be married was to be marry a woman. He said, so I knew it'd have to be a pretty special woman. So he said, I met her about eight months into dating. I told her that I was gay, and she said, okay, I'm in love with you. Let's keep going. And he said, we got married. And he said, for me, it started in friendship, and the sexual attraction came after. He said, I, have a, he said, I'm, I identify as sort of gay, he said, but I, I'm a, I have a one-woman orientation, and I'm married to a woman as a gay man. And the sexual feelings have come because it started with sacrificial friendship because he understood this is the highest order of love, not sexuality. I know some of you, this is like blowing your mind categories, right? But this, this is what Jesus does to us. He says it's, it's actually an amazing thing, but you can, perf- you can live a perfectly fulfilled life without it. There's something more for you in this. And if you're married, what does it mean to pursue sex as beautiful in this. It first of all means you have to talk about it. You have to talk about the ways that it's broken for you. You have to identify maybe there has been lust. Maybe we've treated sex as an exchange. Maybe one partner is generally more interested than the other and it's like, okay, well, I kind of do it for them because I know they need it or whatever. 
say, no, actually, what does it mean to say this is beautiful? This is actually meant to bind us together, soul, body, spirit. This is actually part of our relationship we need to work on. We live in a culture that's so sexualized that you think by the time you get married, you should be amazing at it on day one. And it's like, no, you're actually supposed to start and grow and get better and better and better at it the older you are. And the more that your lives get bound together in this thing that God has created for sex in marriage. And so for some of you in marriage saying, maybe we've just actually settled for too, not too little of it in terms of frequency, although maybe some of you need to ratchet that up, right? But like you've settled for too little in how we think about this. We don't talk about it enough. It's not beautiful enough in our marriage. If God has created this, for it doesn't matter what your age is. It's saying we need to actually talk about this as a part of our relationship. And ultimately, if you're having sex issues in your marriage, it has to do with sacrificial friendship, not about sex therapy. There are issues with self-sacrifice in the relationship that will show themselves up in your sexual relationship. So you want to work on your sex life, actually learn how to serve each other more. So what can I leave you with here? If, se- if intimacy isn't about sex, but about self-sacrifice, have a sex talk, okay? Have a sex talk. Maybe it's the first one you've ever had. First one with Jesus. Maybe you just need to say, Jesus, help me live with unfulfilled desire. You may feel that in your marriage, that sex isn't what, I, what everybody told me it was going to be. And so there's an unfulfilled nature to this. Or maybe you're a single person. You don't know whether you're going to be married. You've decided you're not or whatever. And you say, okay, Jesus, you were a, f- a fulfilled person living out the kingdom of God in your life in a way that was so attractional to the world, and you have changed the world forever, so show me how to live where I'm not just, like, it's this beautiful thing, but I don't have to have it to live a full life. Show me how to deal with those desires. Secondly, if you're married with your spouse, you need to have this conversation. How do we get better at this? How do we get better at this? Where has sort of lust, or we just kind of let this thing fall? It's not beautiful enough in our marriage. Have that conversation. And thirdly, with a trusted friend, you know, and that may be your spouse or whatever, saying, how do I move from lust to love? Like, how, how have I seen people like this? And some of you guys, and, and I say guys more, but they say apparently 35% of women are addicted to pornography now too. It, pornography addiction isn't just about stopping doing something that's bad. It's actually starting to see people for who they are. I need to stop taking something from that person. What makes that person think that that was the best thing they could do with their lives, but they feel like they have to give that away for money? And am I going to be the next person that's going to take it from them? Am I going to say, no, intimacy fundamentally is about self-sacrifice. I will lay down my sexual desires so that one more person isn't enslaved by someone saying, thank you, I'll take that. That's the key in seeing this for what it is. All right, um, so we've talked a bunch. I've dropped some bombs on you. Hopefully Q&R. Tony, have you got any yet? Yes, all right. So we're going to take a couple of questions and then, um, and then we'll have a closing thought and uh, have communion. Um, okay, a few questions have come in. One of them is, um, well, this person referenced King David and King Solomon off the bat and said, well, and these are only two of many stories that we have, particularly in the Old Testament, of many people that we would say, like, we revere in the story of Scripture and in the church, people that we look to as great examples of people who follow God, but they had not only many wives, but many concubines, basically people that they weren't married to and they just had sexual rights over. Um, so what does that mean for us? Yeah, totally messed up. <laughs> Part of this is the problem, the way we have treated Old Testament figures as heroes. They're not. I mean, we name our kids after them. I have, too, right? Like. We do. We just hope they read certain stories and not others. And right. And I think part of what we see here is that to some degree they were products of their time. 
But what you find in the scriptures, every time there's someone with multiple wives or using, you know, in the story of Abraham, or maybe you don't know it, but like he's married and God says, you're going to have a, a son. And he waits and waits and waits and, and there's no son coming. So then his wife says, look, take my maidservant and have sex with her. Now, in the Near Eastern culture, this is normal. No one's even writing about that. But it brings division in the family. Then suddenly she gets kicked out and she's in the desert by herself. Now this is, friends, we read this through the lens of a 21st century novel. Oh, yes, the maidservant is. They didn't care about the maidservant in the ancient world. And yet there's a story about God seeing her in the desert and talking to her. Every time there's a story of someone taking matters into their own hands sexually where they're having multiple, it always goes south. Solomon, at the height of his kingship, you know, like wise and all this stuff. But it says, it says, but however, Solomon loved many, many foreign women and he worshiped their gods too. And so every time you find it, even though to some degree it's an ancient story and that they're a product of their time, every time you see God and, and these things coming in, they always went south whenever they departed from that. And so what we're meant to see is actually this, yeah, they did some kind of noble things, but they also did some really terrible things. And Dave talked about last week how so much of it was oppression to women in a patriarchal culture. And so we look to Jesus as saying the fulfillment of, you know, it's like Adam and Eve were meant to follow God and they didn't. And humanity declines from there. And so in Jesus, we see a restart of humanity, the new person. And so we're saying, okay, where are we supposed to get our marching orders from as humanity? We look to him. We don't look to the figures of the Old Testament. What we see in the Old Testament is the grace of God in spite of the messed up nature of people, which thanks be to God for that. Right, But in Jesus, we see the recapitulation, the restarting of the human race. And amazingly, it doesn't start as a man and a woman. It starts as a single person, completely fulfilled. So I, I think that's we have to see those figures properly in the light of what God was doing in redemption. Um, okay, so uh, you mentioned this one, this one guy who's same-sex uh, oriented, um, but chose uh, to b develop a friendship with another woman and eventually got married to her. So what do you say to, s like, someone who would say, you know, you're talking about um, sacrificial friendship, even in the context of marriage. So I isn't that possible in the context of a same-sex-oriented monogamous relationship? Like, how is that different, and why would God, or why would we believe that God says uh, that that's, uh, you know, like, not, not okay? Yeah. Yeah, really good question. Um, and I think, let me just say, like, for people who are, who are same-sex attracted, who are trying to work through this issue, like, I don't, you know, I'm a heterosexual man talking about it, so there's a sense in which there's a distance from that that I don't understand, but I, as I said, I understand my own sexual brokenness within that. What seems, if you look in the picture of Genesis, why we go back to the beginning of the story, there is a man and a woman, and what we see in the man and the woman is not, like, we live in a culture now that says gender, I, the gender blender, doesn't matter, like, it's just flesh in different parts, that's all it is. And so everything is interchangeable. It doesn't actually matter. And in fact, you can have other genders. But I think what Scripture is saying is, is not just male and female in marriage, but there's a uniqueness about male and female in that they are different from one another. And they have a complementary relationship. And as two different beings come together, they form one. Which is not just the picture of marriage. It's actually the picture of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's a, and, and actually the word, the Greek word that the theologians use to describe the relationship that the Trinity has, this is kind of weird, is called perichoresis, which actually means interpenetration. It's not a sexual term, but it's this idea that there is differentness in the Trinity and yet oneness, uniqueness. And so it makes, there's no accident then, then when that God, 
differences but united into one creates human beings. We see different beings, diversity in unity. And I think so that just gives us a picture of not saying, you know, oh, that, that's all wrong and heterosexual people are not sinful and same-sex attracted people are or whatever. It's saying, no, the God's design for us was always differences united into one that is unique. And I think if we miss that picture, we don't understand a lot of the rest of the story of humanity. We say, well, I desire this. What's wrong with that? I'm desiring something good. And I would say, yeah, sir, a same-sex attracted person who desires to be married in a monogamous relationship is desiring something good. And yet God has said, that's not actually the way I have designed creation to be. And so in the scriptures, we see there are two modes of living, both which involve sacrificial friendship. One is heterosexual marriage and the other is singleness. And both are required. And I think in many ways, heterosexual people have not, there's so much lust in our relationship as well. And so we actually haven't pursued sacrificial friendship. So we think, oh, how could God ask someone like that, you know, who's same-sex attracted gay to not be married? He's asking them to do something difficult as if he's never asked any of us who are not to do something difficult. Life is about sacrificial friendship, whether you're in heterosexual marriage or you're single. And so I think that's part of this biblical picture that we begin to see that. Can we just do one more? Yeah. Okay, one question just came in. It says, uh, what does the Bible say about gender identity? We're actually gonna get to that next week. The whole week is gonna be on that topic, but to help you land the plane, here's a question. Will, sec will sex be redeemed? Will sex be redeemed? Okay, so this, I'm guessing this is a question about, you know, if it is broken, will it be healed? And some people have asked, okay, will there be sex in heaven? And I think this is why the scriptures say there'll actually not be marriage in heaven, is because what we long for most, that sex gives us in actually a, just a small way, is unconditional love and intimacy. Right, like in the garden, you see two people naked, nothing in themselves that they felt they had to hide from the other person and God present. Well, the scriptures describe the new creation, the new city, as a place where God is present, where there's no more tears, no more shame, no more sin. And so we don't actually need sex to get what sex gives us now in the new creation, which is intimacy and friendship and God in the center of it all. And so I think it's possible for God to heal our sexual brokenness. God has this amazing way of, he does not change our past, but he reaches back into it and heals us. And if we're all willing to let him as sexually broken people, he will. And yet the way, the direction creation is moving is not towards, was the second Matrix movie, right? Where, where heaven was some sort of kind of orgy or something like that. Remember, I didn't... Was it the second one or the third one? I can't remember, right? It's this picture of like, okay, somehow, because when you push God out of the center, the only transcendent thing you have left is the orgasm, 30 seconds of heaven on earth, right? When there's no transcendence anymore, when God doesn't exist, the only thing you have is sex. And so the only thing we can envision where ultimate reality, nirvana, heaven is going is just an orgy. Whereas the scriptures say, no, it's actually moving towards intimacy and friendship with God at the center where all of our deepest needs to, be, to know and be known, to be unconditionally loved, will be fulfilled and we will not need sex anymore because it's just a temporary picture and so yes god can heal but it's actually not where um the story is going you know, invite the worship team up they're going to lead us today uh we get to celebrate communion which is right the symbol of sacrificial friendship jesus said greater love has no one than this that they lay down their life for their friends. And he says to his disciples this amazing thing. When they had come to realize that he was creator, when they had come to realize that he was Lord, when they had come to realize that he was the king overall, he says, I call you friends. Friends, come eat at this table.
And so I think for all of us who are, you know, sexually beautiful, sexually broken people, whatever it is your next step is, whatever conversation you need to have next, we have this conversation first with the God who says, I held nothing back from you. I have sacrificed myself for you. I call you friends. And the only requirement to receive this, right, this isn't an exchange. This isn't God trying to get something from us so he can give us salvation. We come to the table with just empty hands. We don't need to bring anything. This isn't an exchange. It is only in terms of our sin, our shame, our guilt, and he gives us back unconditional love. And so as you come today to the table, um, you know, that's what this symbol is. And Tony's going to come and just break that bread and pray for us. If it's the first time you've ever taken it, take it as saying, Jesus, you did this for me. And if it's the hundredth time, take it as saying, thank you. Thank you for laying down your life for me. Thank you for for freeing us from this oppressive thing of like sexual brokenness that sometimes we're told we just have to figure it out, have to figure it out, have to figure it out. And Jesus, you came actually as a person who didn't express it at all. You were fulfilled. And so maybe as you take it, you just want to thank him for who he is and what he's done. So Tony's going to come pray. Uh, If you've never taken it at our church before, just dip a piece of bread in. You can eat it right away. I know some of you from a Catholic background, you can't run away without putting it in your mouth. Go ahead, do that. Some of you like to go back to your seat. That's totally fine. But just receive it because it's given for you.